What's up, everybody? How are we doing tonight? My name is Johnny Artavanis. Give me your name on the count of three. One, two, three. Ah, great to meet you, Greg. Great to meet you. Um, no, I didn't hear any Gregs. Any Gregs in here? It's a dying name. It's a dying name. Are you Greg? This is a church camp, and you already lied? Oh, come on, man. What's your real name? Philip. Philip? I don't even know if I can believe that. Um, all right, well, come see me afterwards. Um, well, hey, I am so grateful to be with you guys. Uh, as I said, my name is Johnny. You can call me Johnny. And um, I have one wife. Her name is Katie. Katie's in the back. Give a little wave, Katie. Yeah, say everyone say, hi, Katie. Katie and I met at Hume Lake. I uh, worked here for a number of years. I hired her to be in the band, and then I made her date me. Um, and then we got married within 12 months. It's a wonderful time. We've been married almost four years now. We have one daughter named Lily. Oh, there's Lily. That was uh, about a year ago. So this, Lily's a little bigger than that now. She doesn't miss a meal. Thank you. Kayla, that's Katie. I had the stash back then. It comes and goes. I'll explain it to you later. Um, tomorrow, I'll give you a little bit of an update on Lily. She is 15 months old now, 16 months. She's amazing. We now have another baby daughter in the womb. Amazing. Yes. I know. I'm, I'm so grateful. We were going to name her Greg, but uh, it's a dying name. Um, let me tell what else. Well, uh, let me see. I, I'm the dean of student life at a school called the Masters University. It's in Southern California. I work there full time. I hang out with students and I travel a fair amount on the side. One of my favorite places on earth is Bakersfield. I like Bakersfield. It's, it's very nice there, actually. So I, I had a, a strange relationship with Bakersfield for a while. I kind of looked at it like... Uh, like a Christian would look at the Golden State Warriors, like you can't like the Warriors, they're Satan's team. Um, what? Come at me, uh, come at me. No, no. Um, well, anyways, now I like Bakersfield. Um, and then where's Carpinteria? Are they here? Where's Carpinteria? Uh, I'd like to welcome you as well. Um, you guys actually live in a beautiful place. Um, uh, unlike Bakersfield, but... Um, well, hey, let me, let me, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, can I do this? I know you guys have already heard Roxy pray. I want to pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's word this evening. But real quick before I do, um, maybe this is your first time at like a Christian anything. Maybe you've grown up in the church, and you kind of just, yeah, prayer is what we do before worship, after worship, before we preach, after we preach. Hey, here's why I pray. And when I say to pray with me, here's what I'm asking for. What the, the Bible teaches and what the Christian believes is that outside of the Holy Spirit, nothing good is going to happen this weekend. Because if I was the greatest communicator on earth that could just play with your emotions, have you laughing one moment, crying the next, oh, do we hate him or love him, we, uh, you know, whatever that would be, I could be the greatest communicator in the world, which I'm not, but outside of God working through his Holy Spirit, nothing good is going to happen in your life and in mine. And maybe you're not a Christian and you have no problem just stating that plainly, or maybe you think you are, or maybe you're not sure, or whatever it might be. What all, I think it's 887 of us need this weekend 
is for the Spirit of God to enable us to see all that is within his word so that he might transform us and recraft us into his image. And so we need to ask God for help. And so I'm gonna ask him, and when I say pray with me, I don't just mean mindlessly listen to someone else pray. When I say pray with me, I mean, if that's what you want, then pray along with me in a way where you could say, Lord, that's what I want as well. Yes, Lord. Let's do that together. God, we love you, and we're so thankful that you love us. I'm not here to give a speech, God. I'm not here to be a talker or a communicator. This isn't a presentation. I'm not trying to be half funny, half serious, and then a point to apply at the end. I want to show them. I want to show these young people, my friends here, what is within your word. And so, Lord, I've been given a task, a task to unveil what's in the scripture, the Bible, a book that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, it says in Hebrews, because the Bible is never dull. It never grows old. It doesn't retire from being useful. It is relevant for our lives. And what every 11-year-old in this room and every 19-year-old and 79-year-old needs is a commitment to the Word of God. And so, Lord, as we look at it this weekend over the next four sessions with me and my new friends here, would we just uh, be receptive to what you would have to teach us? And we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119. Oh God, through your Holy Spirit, open our eyes so that we may see the wonderful things that are within your word. And would you, through your spirit, preach a stronger sermon than any man ever could? We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I hope you have your Bibles because you're gonna need them because I'm not just gonna reference the Bible I want to tell you and show you what's in it. So if you don't have a Bible, get one afterwards this evening. Tonight, I want to be really simple. I want to tell you three things about God, three things about you, and one thing about a dude named the Apostle Paul. Would you turn with me to Ephesians if you have your Bible? It's in the New Testament. If you're new to the whole flipping the pages of Scripture, the table of contents are going to be your friend. Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's written by the Apostle Paul. One thing that you got to understand about Paul just at the beginning is this guy would have been understood amongst the Jewish believers. They would have looked at him much like we would look at an Al-Qaeda terrorist. He was a murderer. He was someone that beat people up because they were Christians. He would throw them in prison, throw them in jail. This guy was pumped out of his mind for one thing, to to find every Christian he could find, travel from city to city to city, and to kill Christians. And what we're going to find out in the life of Paul is that in Acts 9, there's an account where Paul's life is radically transformed. It's not like he just has a shift in his perspective. His life is recrafted. It is transformed by God in the story of Acts 9. And Paul is now a traveling pastor, and he's writing to the church of Ephesus, a real church at a real point in history. This isn't just some storybook that someone made up. This is a real church in Turkey 2,000 years ago. I always want to remind you of that. When you talk about the Bible, we're looking at the most accurate source of history, the most accurate source of science, and the most accurate source of philosophy in the world. This is where it all begins. So in Ephesians 4, 17, we're just going to use this as an initial, initial launching pad for this evening because the rest of our weekend, we're going to be looking at the rest of chapter 4, but I want you to see Paul's argument just initially. He says, so this I say, 4, 17, and affirm together with the Lord 
that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then he just says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. A couple things just to note here. Paul says, I'm talking on behalf of the Lord. That word Lord is curious. It means that he's speaking on behalf of God who is not just a distant creator. He is the one that rules over all things. But then Paul's going to just remind us of a certain reality in verse 18. He says, they have been darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Excluded from the life of God. Now, this takes us back to something very pivotal. Now, how many of you have watched ever, ever, you know, a movie where at the beginning, the beginning scene is really the end of the movie? Do you know what I'm talking about? And then it flashes back from there. That would be like what? Princess Bride, right? It's the old dude in the, the rocking chair. Uh, what's another movie? Uh, Ratatouille. Classic. One of my favorites, right? The opening scene is the rat jumping out of the window with the book. And it freezes there, Emperor's New Groove, ahead of your time. But uh, if you want to be a mature Christian, you'll watch it later. Now, Emperor's New Groove starts when the guy's already a llama, and then it kind of goes back from there, and it retells the story. Now, in order for us to understand what's happening in your Bible, you have to understand that right now, where you are in 2023, we're in the middle of an epic drama. There's more happening in creation than Greg is born, Greg lives, well, He's not Philip, he's a liar. But Greg is born, Greg lives, and Greg dies. There's more to life than just cradle to coffin. There's an epic drama that's playing out. And the Bible wants you to understand something about that story. Because Paul says there's something happening with the church in Ephesus. They need to be different from those who have been excluded from the life of God. Now, he says excluded from the life of God, but that's not the way that things were meant to be. But here we are in the middle of the story, and to understand what Paul is saying... We need to rewind, not just a scene or two, but to the beginning of the story. Paul is going to reference elsewhere in the book of Romans that the world you and I live in is broken. How many of you have a hard time believing that the world we live in is broken? I, I don't have a hard time. We live in a world with headaches and migraines and anxiety and COVID and confusion and cancer, all of these things. And we look around and Romans 8 says that's because all of the earth has been subjected to futility. The cosmos is fractured. Now, you might be 11 and you might be 19, but it doesn't matter. You have different experiences in seventh grade than you do your senior year of high school. But something I understood from a very young age was that there are certain things that are not the way they should be. I don't like the way that there's violence and there is heartache and there is death and there is disease. When I was 11, my friend's dad died. It was a shocking moment. My dad, I was at my friend's house and his dad went on a run and never came back. And it was just one of those moments where I remember I was one of the pallbearers at his funeral and I was in sixth grade and I just remember hearing the guy saying, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as we layered this, laid this guy's dad into the earth. I'm like, this guy was 44, just a fit, like ex-Marine. And I understood, I, this there very clearly, this is just not the way it's supposed to be. But in order to understand that, we have to understand the first sentence of the Bible, and, and maybe you're so familiar with it, but I, I wanna look at this with you just in Genesis 1-1, because it's where we're gonna at least 
respond to that. Paul says we're then excluded from the life of God, but in that, that should trigger something for us because we were not meant to be excluded from the life of God. We were meant to live with God. How does the story begin? Well, it says this in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, raise your hands. How many of you have known that verse since you were two or three years old? And maybe some of you have just heard it for the first time, and that's okay. But here's what you need to understand. Every scientist is looking for the answer, where did the earth come from? Every philosopher is looking for the answer to the question, what is the point of life? And every theologian across every different religion is looking for the answer, who is God? And the first sentence of your Bible gives you all of the answers they'll ever need to frame their lives upon. You want to be a scientist? You start here. You want to be a philosopher? You start here. You want to know who God is? You start here. The question of who am I? Why am I here? And what is my destiny? How do things work? They're answered initially in the first sentence in your Bible. There was a famous painter, Paul Gagone, and his a contemporary of Picasso, and he, his most famous work is hanging in the Boston Museum. And in French, on the upper right-hand corner, he has these three questions written in French. Du venons-nous, que sommes-nous, où allons-nous? And it's famous because this guy was one of the most famous painters in the world, but you know what he couldn't wrap his mind around? It's, who are we? Where are we going? And what is my purpose? And those are the questions he wrote in French. And those questions that he wrote in the upper hand corner are, are more prominent than the painting itself because every single person can identify with that reality. But here is this first sentence. Now, there are three possible explanations for anything that exists. We've been watching this film. There's a potter. There's a clay. And, and here's, you know, if there was a pot sitting here, let's say this is a pot. This is actually crystal geyser. Highly recommend. But let's say this is a pot. There are three possible expla explanations for anything that is alive today. Number one, it is self-created. Number two, it is eternal. Or number three, it was created by something or someone that is eternal. So the three options for anything that exists, logically, is that it is self-created, meaning I made myself. Number two, it's eternal. I was always there. Or third, something that was created by something that is eternal. Now, when the first is kind of destroyed as a logical fallacy, you can't have something that actually made itself. Things don't just exist. That's impossible. There's only the second and the third option. That which is eternal and that which the eternal one has made. Those are the only two options for anything that exists. And so this is who God is. In the beginning, there's time. God, there's a subject created. There's force and power the heavens and the earth. But here's what's interesting. The school system you're a part of and the state you live in, beautiful at that, wants you to believe that this very first sentence is ridiculous. What a stupid moron would believe that, that God created everything. I mean, I travel frequently and I'll sit next to people and it's always one of the funny things. Do you really believe that God created everything? What's harder for me to believe is that everything we look at is a cosmic accident, that two things collided, 
And all of this is the reality. But here's what you need to understand about the potter, the master. Right now, we are on a ball that's two-thirds full of water, spinning this way at 1,000 miles an hour while we orbit the sun that is 93 million miles away. If we were 93 million and one miles away, we would fling off into the solar system and freeze. If we were one mile closer to the sun, we would burn. And scientists say, well, just a coincidence. Right now, if you got in a car and you drove 65 miles an hour, it would take you 163 years to reach the sun. That's how far away the sun is from us. If you're going to take that same car and drive to Pluto, it would take you 6,500 years. But this is just our own galaxy. And I wanted to just frame this for you because I want you to understand the God that made you. This is our nearest. Now, Kayla, do we have the Milky Way? So this is the Milky Way. I want you to understand this. So look at those stars. And there's one of the millions and millions and millions of galaxies. But this is our galaxy. And our closest star is the sun. It's 93 million miles away. And then there's all these other ones. Now, just leave this up for a second. Kayla, the next closest star system to ours is the Alpha Centauri star system, which is 25 trillion miles away. The stars are innumerable. It says about these stars in Psalm 147 that the potter is so creative and so intentional and so knowledgeable that it says in Psalm 147.4, he determines the number of stars and he gives to all of them their names. Now go back, Kayla, real quick to that photo. Meaning that God doesn't just go, blob of dust, they're fireflies. No, this is what he does. He's looking at them and he says, every single one of them is given a name. None of them are named Greg because that name's evil. But every single one of those names, every one of those stars is named by God. And he takes great care and precision and creativity. And he created all these things for his glory. In Genesis 1.16, it says this about the stars. It says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And then this is my favorite. It says, he made the sun, he made the moon, and then there's a semicolon and it says, uh, and he made the stars also. The creation of this galaxy and the millions of other galaxies are included in five words in your Bible. And he made the stars also because God is getting somewhere in his holy word. This isn't the high point of God's creation. If you were a God, you'd be like, I'll show you my awesomeness. Boom. No, God is moving somewhere because there's a high point coming. So I want you to understand something about the earth. The earth is in this, you know, there's this picture called the little blue dot, and it shows our earth and the galaxy, and it's this tiny little insignificant dot. And the people, you know, in science would ask, what's so special about this dot? But I'll tell you what's so special about it. On that special dot that God has made, planet earth the greatest drama is unfolding and god is going to demonstrate his glory not just in vast galaxies but on one of the smallest planets because on the smallest planet god is going to do something profound that demonstrates his glory unlike any other thing what's the crown jewel of the glory of god in the creation a nebula no it's not a nebula the mountains no, it's not the mountains. The crown jewel of creation is Genesis 1.26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's the Trinity. 
God is three in one. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle all over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Do you think the Bible wants you to understand something when it says it twice? There's no redundancy. God's not a bad writer. He's not like, Bob is nice, Bob is nice. No, that's not the way it's working here. God created man in his own image. Yes, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Bible's hammering something home. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea. I mean, what an awesome job description. What do I do, God? Rule over creation. I mean, that's a cool job. The Bible is moving towards a grand story that's going to unfold. Out of the dust, God is literally going to form Adam. This isn't an allegory. This is history. This is how the earth began. That's hard to believe. It's much harder for me to believe that two planets collided and everything happened. So God is doing this. And it says in Isaiah 64, 8, one of our main passages for this weekend, that God is the potter and we are the clay and he is forming and fashioning all things for his glory and for our good. Now, the first time, I want you to understand something about, that's so unique about being made in the image of God. Last year when we were having a baby, and I, I know that some of you are young, but I also know that you're in junior highs and high schools that preach insane things at you all the time, so I think this is okay. When Katie and I went in to go get our ultrasound for our baby, the doctor said, uh, do you want to take the blood test to find out whether it's a Down syndrome baby? And we said, no, we don't, we don't care. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Because regardless of what's in the womb, that's someone made in the image of God. And I'm going to love that baby. But the doctors are asking in a way where it's like, hey, if it's, not, if it's not a healthy baby, if there's something wrong with it, we can just take next steps. My cousin has a Down syndrome son named Rhodes. And Rhodes is now four years old. And Rhodes, in many ways, will be dependent upon his parents for the rest of his life. He is um, the happiest boy you would ever meet. In the eyes of the world, people would say, well, Rhodes, you know, that's awesome, but, um, you know, in countries like Australia and New Zealand, they're just saying, well, we, we, don't even want, we don't even want that. But what the opening page of the Bible is going to tell you is that in God's eyes, Rhodes, that baby, he's more valuable than Fasachi Pegasus. Who's Fasachi Pegasus? Kayla, show me my horse. This is Fasachi Pegasus. Everyone say Fasachi. This is the most expensive horse ever sold. This horse was sold for $70 million. Because he invested all of his money in Dogecoin. No, the, um, <laughs> this horse was sold for $70 million. It's a, a racing horse. Let me just read you what the Wall Street Journal says about this horse. He had nine starts, six wins, and two losses. He was bought for this high amount by Irish breeder Coolmore Stud, the world's largest thoroughbred breeding operation. He now lives in Kentucky. This horse is immensely valuable in the eyes of the world. But do you understand something about the opening page of your Bible? 
my baby cousin Rhodes is worth a million times more in the eyes of God than all of the horses in the whole world. And it would be a greater tragedy for something to happen to baby Rhodes than if all of the horses on planet Earth died. Why? Because God made man in his image. It's not like he just went, you know, uh, man, woman, oh, this is the reflection of my glory. When God went, I want to demonstrate who I am as a creator. He said, I, I want to make a man and a woman and I want them to make babies and I want them to populate the earth. God is proud of the horse. If you read the Bible and Job, God will tell Job, did you give the horse its might? Did you give the horse the ability to ride bravely into battle? God is not shy. He loves what he's made. And when he looks at the horse, he goes, yeah, I made that. But what God is far more proud of is a baby child, is you. Because baby Rhodes, baby Philip, carries with him a God-like deposit. And that is what's called the Imago Dei, the image of God. God being the potter and you being the clay is a unique thing to understand, but it means this, that when God made you, if you're the clay, it's not just that you're a piece of plastic that he looks at. He's invested in you. So I want to just real quick in that regard about being made in the image of God. In Genesis 4, I just want to read this for you. You can write it down. It's just talking about the earliest generations. And it says in, uh, this in Genesis 4.20, Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of all those who live in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. I mean, how would you like to be two boys named Jabal and Jubal? He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. Now, this, I was just thinking about this the other day. God made people, and he made them with their own unique characteristics, personalities, giftings, and everything. So it says in Genesis 4, yeah, there comes Jabal. He's the father of all those who own livestock. God says, here's the first cowboy. And his brother, it says, is the father of all those who play the flute. Ah, uh, yeah, Shakespeare, John Wayne. And God says, both realities and both extremes bring me glory. Because God doesn't just make robots. He imparts and deposits in people all of the different elements of who he is. Are you a musician? Then you reflect the image and glory of God. Do you love animals? Then you reflect the image and glory of God. Do you like sports? Then that competition, the drive for excellence reflects the glory of God. Personality, characteristics, gifting, creativity reflects who God is, and that's why everyone's different. And this is a good thing, and God looked at everything he made, and it was good. So I said at the beginning, I want to tell you three things about God. Number one, that, was that God is a creator, and you're a created being. Number two, God is holy. God is holy. God being the potter and we being the clay separates us from God because that means obviously I'm not the potter. He's the potter and I'm the clay. 
A.W. Tozer said this, and maybe you're familiar with the line, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you? Meaning when I say, hey, who do you believe God to be? That is the most important thing in your life. What that, that thought that comes to your mind, because everything in your life hinges on who you believe God to be. What you do with your boyfriend or girlfriend, the things you look at on your phone, the things that you say, the things that you watch, whatever it might be, the friends you hang out with, everything in your life hinges on who you believe God to be. And God is, in the scriptures, identified by one attribute more than any other attribute over and over again in the Bible, and that is God's holiness, God's holiness. And when we want to look at who God is, we need to look at the Bible. Why? Why is the Bible so crucial for us in knowing God? Well, because without the Bible, which is God's revelation of himself, our view of God ends up being preferential and imaginative rather than biblical and accurate. When I say preferential, I mean this. We live in a world of preferences. I don't like Thousand Island dressing. Sue me, right? I don't like mayonnaise because I have taste buds. I don't like those things, so get off my back. We live in a world of preferences, but people apply those preferences to who they believe God to be. That's not the God that I choose to believe in. I don't like that way, God. I just don't believe that a loving God would do this or say this. But what we need to understand is that when we want to know God, it's not up to our preferences. It's not up to our tastes. It's not up to our opinions. If you want to know God, then we must humbly submit to how he has revealed himself in his holy word. And when God wants you to know something about him, what he's going to point at over and over again, is his holiness. And his holiness, you guys know like a wheel, like a, a wagon wheel, if you will? The holiness of God is the hub of the wheel because every other attribute of God, that means just how we would describe God, his mercy, his love, his justice is connected to his holiness. God's love is a holy love. God's justice is a holy justice. What does it mean that God is holy then? Well, here's what you need to know. God's holiness simply stated, means that God is unlike you. Unlike you. We live in a world that wants to diminish the barrier between us and God. We want him to be viewed as a bigger and better version of ourself. But when Paul says he's speaking on behalf of the Lord in Ephesians 4.17, that word Lord means king of the universe. And God is not like us. Exodus 15, 11 is going to ask the question, who is like the Lord, majestic in holiness? Do you know the answer to that question, who is like the Lord? What's the answer? Well, Jesus, yeah. The answer is no one. You know why? Because you are not almost God. God never defines himself by anything outside of himself because there's nothing even close to him. He doesn't say, well, if you want to understand me, you think about this. No, he says, I am God and there is no other God is totally holy. He is pure in all respects. He cannot tolerate sin. So the potter that we have that's made us in his image, when he created that world, he made it a world of perfect obedience where all of life was meant to be lived unto his glory and in his presence. And we'll talk about this in the morning, but sin fractured all that was good but God is still the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is a holy God. So God is the creator of all things, and God is holy. And third and finally here, just in regards to who God is, God is sovereign. 
God is sovereign. When we talk about God being the potter and we being the clay, God does not just uh, back away from what he's created. He didn't wind the clock and then sit down on a lazy boy, grab a jamba juice, and just kind of observe what's happening. He is a hands-on ruler over all things. You want to know what the holiness of God means? It says in Isaiah 46.9, write this down. Isaiah 46.9, there's a definition for the holiness of God for us. It says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Here's one of the things about God that you need to understand. God is not shy. He's not self-deprecating. And I've used this illustration before. When I was working here, one of my favorite things to do is I'd bring, you know, anybody, anybody's birthday in here? Is it, is it actually your birthday or are you a liar like Greg? Okay. Well, I used to bring people up on stage and I used to say, what's your name? Tammy, you know, and I would go, okay, Tammy, and I would sing to them, and I would say, everyone sing with me, and I, they would stand up, and there's two types of people when you sing happy birthday, right? One of them's like the, <laughs> and they moonwalk off the stage, you know, because they're just, I don't know about this. The other's like, anybody else's birthday? Yeah, Steve Holt, you know, so the guy comes up on stage, and he starts singing along with everyone else, and they're, happy birthday to me, you know, and he's just like, all right, Chad, you know, so... There's two types of people, but in our minds, when we say God is amazing, he deserves all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise, somewhere in our minds, because we like when people are shy and modest, we think that God is up in heaven going, no, it's okay, guys, please, that's okay, please direct and deflect your attention somewhere else, that's so kind of you, so kind of you, but settle down. <laughs> but biblically speaking, when we say, God, you deserve all the glory, God says louder for all of the nations to know. And God himself wants you to know that. He says, I am God, Isaiah 46, 9, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. God says there is none like me. And then he's going to detail exactly why there is no one like him in all of creation. Verse 10, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. When God wants to explain why he is unlike every other so-called deity and every so-called, or every other man, how he explains it is with his sovereignty because I establish every single purpose of mine. From the beginning, I've said what's gonna happen at the end. And in the middle of the story, I dictated what happened at the beginning. Everything is playing along to the symphony of creation that I am composing. And there's no accidents. God's sovereignty means that he rules and he reigns over everything. He's the boss. God's sovereignty is sometimes easier to explain by explaining what God is not like, right? Sometimes in the Bible, when it's trying to explain the truthfulness of God, it explains it simply by, gain, by saying God cannot lie. Because saying God cannot lie means that he's so truthful, he, he cannot lie. And God's sovereignty means this. He's never been surprised. He's never had to change his plans. He's never called an audible. He's never panicked. He's never hurry, hurried. He's never rushed. He's in complete control of all things because he is the potter. And the pot's not fighting back with him, and he's not going, no, no, no. He's just like this, as you saw in the, in the film. He's crafting. He's not straining. He's not worried. He's not anxious. He's not panicked. He's composing everything for his glory and for your good. God's sovereignty, it says in Job 42, 
verse two, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours, O God, can be thwarted. God's sovereignty means that not only does he have the authority to rule and reign over your life, but he exercises that authority each and every minute of every single day for all of eternity. When I say he has the authority to rule and reign, right now in the UK, there's, you know, the, there's the prince, there's the queen, Meghan Markle. I don't really know all about it. I'm still confused. But those are figureheads, right? They don't actually rule the UK. Who rules the UK? Who has got the greatest authority there? The prime minister. What's, what's the royal family there for? To make money, right? So to make money. But God is not up on his throne going, bring me the tabloids, and doesn't actually exercise his authority. When God is the king of the universe, he doesn't just have this name where he's king. He is actually ruling and reigning. It says in Psalm 103, verse 17, that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. It's established. It's fixed. It's firm. And his sovereignty rules over all things. Every hair on your head, it's known by God. Every tear you've ever cried, it's known by God. Every heartache, it's known by God. God's never confused because he's the potter. God is not observing what is coming to pass. He is ordaining what is coming to pass, it says in the Bible. And God's sovereignty, that power that he has, is necessary for every other attribute of God to be meaningful to us. What do I mean by that? Well, if God was loving but not sovereign, then he would never actually be able to demonstrate his love to you because his hands would be tied because he's not actually the ruler of all creation. If God were wise but not sovereign, he would never be able to execute the wisdom in his mind. If God were good but not sovereign, he would never be able to actually implement his goodness into the created world. One famous theologian used to say that God's favorite attribute about himself is his sovereignty. Because God is so sovereign and so powerful and rules over all things in such a way where he can make his love known, his goodness known, and so forth. If God is not a sovereign God, God is not God. That's like saying, if a potter can't make a pot, he's not a potter. Because he's not doing what he wants to do. He has no control. God's sovereignty means he's in total control over your life. God is sovereign, just briefly, over four things. God is sovereign over nature. In the book of Jonah alone, it says that God is sovereign over the waves. He's sovereign over the whale, the great fish. He's sovereign over a worm. He's sovereign over, over a tree. Everything that happens is according to God's plan. It says in Job that he tells the waves, thus far you shall come and no further. Go to the beach. And I want you to look at the waves and I want you to see them through a biblical lens. Every single time a wave crashes on the shore, it was predetermined by God when it would crash, where it would crash, how far the tide would come up because that's how detailed God's sovereignty is. God is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over nations. It says in Proverbs, the king's heart is directed like channels of water. This president was elected by God. The next president will be elected by God. There's human responsibility in that, but God is not going, no, they blew it. He's absolutely sovereign. God is sovereign over evil. In Genesis 50, 20, it says when Joseph was kidnapped, maybe you're familiar with the story, he said, what you meant for evil, God, what? You know, sometimes I think we think that it says God turned into good. But it says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because God is not taking bad situations going, oh, great, Gabriel, Michael, help. 
No, he's going like this. Every single thing that's happening is according to my plan. One day all sin will be punished. But God is not calling audibles. There are no gaps in his sovereignty. So God is sovereign over nature and nations and evil. And then lastly here, and we'll be done in just a minute. God is sovereign over time. When I say a minute, that really probably means four to five. You know, I don't want to be a liar like Greg. So God is sovereign over time. God being sovereign over time means that from cradle to coffin and everything in between, God is sovereign over your life. It says in Psalm 139 that every single day you would live has been predetermined by God. I was just reading the news. There was this quarterback that died last year, and uh, he was hit by a dump truck. He was a quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, their, back, their back, uh, backup QB. He was a standout at Ohio State, and he got hit by a dump truck. And they said, how did he die? And it's just that it's a tragedy. He died so young. He had his whole life in front of him. Biblically speaking, no one has their whole life in front of them. You don't, you're not promised till you're 80. God has determined how many breaths you will breathe before you ever breathe a single one. He's sovereign over your time. So in light of who God is, that he is a creator, that he is sovereign, and that he is holy, what do we need to learn? Well, you can never learn about yourself until you first understand who God is. Do you understand that? We live in a world where we talk about identity so much, but you cannot possibly, you know the stories where like, I found out I was adopted, I want to go find my father, because once I find my father, then I'll understand the way I am. We love stories like that. But what's funny is that we deny that we have a creator. What's understood on a fundamental level is to understand who you are, you have to understand where you came from. And God says in Isaiah, everything in creation is mine for my glory that I made with intentionality, with purpose, with design. And because, three things, because God is a creator, it means he gets to define who you are. You're not an accident. You're gonna walk into your junior class at high school, they're gonna tell you you are a cosmic glob of protoplasm, a bunch of goo, a grown-up germ, and you've gone, gone from basically from goo to the zoo, and there we are, and we come out of nowhere, and that's, you really want to understand who you are? Look at millions of years, and no, the Bible says, no, 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 you're not just a part of a process, you are made by God, and one of the first and fundamental things you must understand is God made you with intentionality, you're not an accident, you're made for his glory, and he loves you, and he knows you. It says in John 10 that he knows your name. He knows every single star in the sky, and stars aren't made in the image of God. So it says in John 10, he knows your name. He knows your hairs. He knows every single tear, it says in Isaiah, that you've ever cried, and he holds your tears in a bottle. You being made in the image of God means that the world doesn't get to define you. God defines you because you belong to him. So because God is your creator, he defines your identity. Number two, because God is holy, your greatest need in life is to be holy like the God who made you. We're gonna talk about this tomorrow, but in Matthew 5, it says you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so you need to be holy to have a right relationship with a holy God. And number three, because God is sovereign, your entire life is held in the hands of God. In Ecclesiastes 9, it says that all of the earth and all of God's people are held in the hands of God. 
And in Acts 17, it says that in him we move and breathe and have our being, which means that God is the one giving every single breath of air you ever breathe. And your life, even the difficulty and even the trial, has been in the hand of God. We're going to be talking a lot about this God and Paul throughout the rest of the weekend. But the Bible is all about one person. The Bible's theme is about one person. The theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And the Bible's question for you is, do you know him? Do you know him? Because you could be Elon Musk and worth endless billions. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, you have nothing. So I hope by the end of this weekend, you know Jesus Christ. Because he was there at the beginning when you were created. He knows you, he loves you. And he offers you life in himself. Would you pray with me? God, we love you so much, and we're so thankful for the revelation of your word. God, and uh, just pray that with any confusion or any questions anyone would have or the desire for more to know, I pray that you would drive them to your word. There's so much here, God. So I pray that you would direct their hearts and direct their focus to scripture. God, I pray that your spirit would help us to understand, Lord, that you are a God who's made us in your image for your glory to dwell with us. Lord, part of the reason our world is so broken is because it's so alienated from God. And Lord, what broken people need is to be recrafted and remade and renewed by God. Lord, we love you and we're so thankful you love us. We pray this in your name, amen.